Hello and welcome to episode 24 of my Leaders of the American Civil War podcast. In this episode, we continue our discussion of General Thomas J. Jackson. Now, before we get started, I'd like to make a request of my kind audience. If you happen to be listening to this podcast on Apple or Spotify or any app that allows you to do it, please take a moment and rate the podcast. Hopefully, five stars, of course, and also write a review if you care to. This helps others to find the podcast, and it's also enjoyable for me to read your feedback. I'm in the process of creating a social media page, which soon should allow for easy, easier interaction. Okay, about 10 years before the Civil War, on August the 13th of 1851, Major Thomas J. Jackson reported for duty at Virginia Military Institute, or VMI. He was 27 years old, and he was known to most people as Tom. S.C. Gwynn, in his book Rebel Yell, describes him in the following way. By most accounts and photographic evidence, he was, if not exactly handsome, a reasonably good-looking young man. He was tall. At just under six feet, he was nearly five inches taller than the average American male of the era. He weighed about 170 pounds. He wore his medium brown hair short in the military style of the day and sported side whiskers that extended nearly to the bottom of his chin, another army affectation. He had a wide forehead, a sharply defined aquiline nose, a small, firm mouth, and strikingly transparent gray-blue eyes. From the moment he arrived at VMI, his appearance was awkward. He wore his very best uh, outfit with double-breasted blue frock coat, tapered white pantaloons, and artillery boots. However, he was also wearing a a, a kepi hat that was pushed too far forward to see his face, and his boots were so enormous they appeared to swallow up his legs, which walked in unnaturally long strides. Almost immediately upon arrival at VMI, the cadets mocked his appearance, with one cadet saying, Come out of them boots. They are not allowed in this camp. This treatment uh, signaled the beginning of the trials that Jackson would endure while at VMI. Now, VMI is located in Lexington, Virginia, which at the time was a lovely town at the southern end of the Shenandoah Valley. Made of brick and clapboard houses and church steeples, uh, and it had about 1,800 inhabitants. The town had been settled by Scots, Irish, and German immigrants who had migrated from Pennsylvania in the 1700s. Unlike the Tidewater gentry of eastern Virginia, the people of Lexington were middle-class farmers and merchants, and they were upwardly mobile. They were devout in their Christian beliefs, and they were mainly Protestant Lutherans or Calvinists. Of the 1,800 inhabitants, about 1,100 were white, 55 or 550 were slaves, and the rest were free blacks. VMI and Washington College were located there, and both were very small. VMI only had five professors and 117 students at the time. Both colleges were at the center of the social life at Lexington, and social activity was a major stumbling block for Jackson. He simply could not make small talk, and more often than not didn't speak at all at social gatherings. He didn't understand figures of speech at all and he would correct someone who used the term, you know, while talking. 
Jackson would frequently interrupt someone to say that he did not know. He would never agree with someone who said they wished things were different than they were. For example, if someone said, don't you wish it would stop raining? He would simply reply, yes, if the maker of the weather thinks it's best. That killed all weather-related small talk. He would never acknowledge that he envied another person, and he would not engage in flattery of any kind. He refused to judge people or to engage in gossip. This behavior mainly grew out of his Christian faith and desire to be uncompromisingly truthful at all times. He had also learned these traits from one of his favorite books, The Principles of Courtesy, by George Winifred Hervey. He appeared to live his life strictly by the principles in this book and his interpretation of Christian values. He was deeply shy by nature and terribly uncomfortable when asked to speak publicly. This would make it particularly difficult to be an effective professor, which he unfortunately was not. But more on that in a moment. Jackson's defining personality trait, in my opinion, was an iron will and a determination to never give up, ever. As an example of this, he was terrified of public speaking. But rather than give in to his fear, he joined a local debating society. Now, this was an excruciating experience for him, and his fellow debaters uh, felt it along with him. When speaking, he would get red-faced and flustered. Then he would get confused and stop talking altogether. But he never accepted defeat and never gave up, even when humiliated again and again in the course of a typical evening. Also, when asked by his pastor to lead prayers in church, Jackson willingly willingly complied. The prayers he offered were indeed just as painful for the audience as they were for him. But here, too, Jackson refused to quit. When the pastor, out of respect for Jackson's feelings, did not call on him for a few weeks uh, to pray, Jackson protested. My comfort or discomfort is not the question, he said. If it is my duty to lead in prayer, then I must persevere in it until I learn to do it aright, and I wish you to discard all consideration of my feelings. He never did become an eloquent public speaker, But Jackson eventually learned to stand and speak or lead prayers competently and without humiliation. Perhaps the oddest and best-known thing about Jackson was his obsession with his health. Though many considered him a hypochondriac, he indeed did have several very real illnesses. He had an eye ailment that was called uvitis, and it became so acute that he felt pain just trying to focus his eyes on objects. He saw spots or floaters and was so sensitive to light that he feared he might go blind. He never read at night, and he would close his eyes and stand alone in the dark to mentally prepare his lessons at VMI. uh, To deal with the pain, he would dip his face in a basin of cold water sometimes, and that would help him. He suffered from dyspepsia also throughout his life. Uh, This affliction caused him constant pain and limited his diet to mostly just cornbread and water. He suffered from eye and ear infections and eventually lost the hearing in his right ear. 
Jackson was indeed obsessive about his health. In addition uh, to his eyes and his digestive system, he worried about his hearing, his throat, his liver, kidneys, nervous system, muscles, and his circulation. In addition to his health uh, obsessions, uh, there were many stories about his behavior, some of which were true and some were apocryphal. Some of these were are that Jackson believed that one of his legs was heavier than the other and that one arm was also heavier as well. For this reason, it is said that he had the habit of raising the heavy arm straight up so that as he did, the blood would run back into his body and lighten that limb. Nevertheless, with all these foibles, one can begin to grasp the main reason for Jackson's success in war. He was successful for the same reason he overcame his terrible fear of public speaking and his, his physical ailments, either real or imagined. It came from a conviction that he could overcome all obstacles by sheer force of will. He would never give up and he would never accept defeat. The main course Jackson taught at VMI was called Natural and Experimental Philosophy, or what we might call physics today. It was a very difficult course, but one that Jackson had excelled at at West Point. However, being a good student is not the same as being a good professor. According to the many accounts left by his former students, he did not really teach at all. Instead, he would assign what were considered to be extremely difficult lessons and then listen to the cadets recite those lessons on the blackboard, correcting them as they went along. He didn't offer guidance or explanations of the material. When the confused cadets asked him to explain some point of the lesson, Jackson's answer was simply to recite back to them the exact words of the text. He had committed these lessons to memory and then rehearsed for hours in the darkness due to his eye pain. He had nothing else to offer them and no help of any kind during class. This frustrated the cadets and led to nicknames like Old Tom, Tom Fool, Old Hickory, and Squarebox in reference to his large feet. By the end of the first year, it had become common knowledge that Major Jackson was the worst teacher at VMI. Even Colonel Francis H. Smith VMI's superintendent at the time, acknowledged his failure. Later, after Jackson became famous, Smith wrote, He had not the qualifications needed for so important a chair. He he was no teacher, and he lacked the tact required in getting along with his classes. He was a brave man, a conscientious man, and a good man, but he was no professor. Over time, the cadets increasingly made fun of Jackson. They drew caricatures of his large feet on the chalkboard and humiliated him with catcalls in the hallway. Through all of this, Jackson never lost his temper or his dignity. Instead, he took it all in stride and was perfectly imperturbable. He acted as though he were too thick to understand what was really happening. They played tricks on him. They made sport of him, wrote D.H. Hill, a math professor at Washington College at the time. They teased him, they persecuted him, all in vain. He turned neither to the right nor to the left, but went straight on his own ways. 
Many of his students actually admired him for his convictions and for his well-known record of service in in the Mexican War. He was also admired for his strong sense of duty and for his Christian ethics. However, Jackson had several confrontations with cadets, the most notable of which was with James A. Walker. Walker was a highly ranked student in Jackson's trigonometry class who challenged, challenged Jackson over a problem he had written on the blackboard. When Jackson told him to be quiet, Walker refused, at which time Jackson placed him under arrest. Walker was eventually court-martialed and dismissed from the school. And when this happened to Walker, it is said that he challenged Jackson to a duel and demanded satisfaction. Now, the story is confused at this point, but it is believed after asking D.H. Hill for advice and then ignoring this advice, Jackson eventually went to the magistrate to file a restraining order against Walker. Ironically, James Walker went on to fight with distinction under Jackson as part of the Stonewall Brigade in the Civil War. He was promoted to colonel in March of 1862, and in 1863 he was promoted to brigadier general and became the Stonewall Brigade's last commanding officer. Thirty-nine years after his expulsion from VMI, he acted as chief marshal at the unveiling of Stonewall Jackson's monument at Lexington, Virginia. Now, Walker wasn't alone. In fact, so many alumni complained about Jackson that a full-scale protest was made in 1865 in which an investigation was undertaken to determine his worthiness to teach science at the Institute. In July, the alumni presented a resolution condemning the mismanagement of the Department of Natural and Experimental Philosophy and saying that Jackson lacked, quote, capacity adequate to the duties of the chair, unquote. However, after all of this, nothing happened. The VMI board decided simply to table the resolution, and that was the end of it. Now, considering how difficult it must have been for Jackson to work in a job for so many years in which he was clearly not competent, it's amazing that he stuck it out. As we've discussed already, however, Jackson never quit and he never admitted defeat, even when he was clearly defeated. He believed God had placed him there, and he persisted because he thought God wanted him to. Now, Jackson was also an instructor of artillery at VMI, and he was much better at this job. In fact, he was known to teach the best artillery course in the South, many considered equal to that of West Point. During his 10 years at VMI, he taught many future Confederate officers their artillery skills. That included many who would eventually... Uh, be under Jackson's command. Now, meanwhile, another of Jackson's idiosyncrasies was he was known to have problems with officers of elevated rank and men in authority over him. This was evidenced by an incident with VMI Superintendent Smith in which Jackson believed he was unfairly reprimanded. He demanded that Smith put his reprimand in writing and allow him to defend the charges. The incident did not go any further, but Jackson's relationship with Smith was poor from that point onward. 
His problems with authority were also evident in his career as an antebellum army officer. Years earlier, during a posting at Ford Meade, Florida, his commanding officer was William H. French. Jackson was quartermaster at the fort, and the posting went well enough at first. Then he came under heavy, intense criticism from French for his performance on several expeditions in the uh, Florida swampland. He had not performed up to expectations of French. Jackson's health problems became worse under this heavy criticism, and he tried and failed to be transferred to another post. But then Jackson turned the tables on French and took things up a notch to a full-scale feud. Jackson filed charges against his commander French for interfering with his job as quartermaster, and also for cheating on his wife with a servant girl named Julia. The charges of adultery appear to have been unfounded, and indeed his case against French was weak, but Jackson persisted. His religious convictions took over, and he was relentless in his attacks on French. After many months of intensive back-and-forth charges, one against the other, French began, began to unravel. Jackson was placed under arrest by French until the matter was finally put to rest by General David Twiggs in Tampa. Then his request for a new posting was finally approved. Jackson, meanwhile, seemed unscathed by what happened at Fort uh, Meade, but French and his family were overcome with anger and shame. Jackson, however, was completely immune from regret and instead was busy making plans for a new life at Virginia Military Institute. In fact, before the dispute with French at Fort Meade, he had already received an unsolicited invitation from Colonel Smith at VMI to teach there. D.H. Hill had put forward Jackson's name for the job. Hill had been impressed with Jackson's performance in the Mexican War, and VMI was desperate to fill this position that was open. Now, after a very shaky and problematic tenure in the antebellum army, Jackson was suddenly a professor. Some historians have actually compared Jackson's time in the U.S. Army prior to the Civil War to Ulysses S. Grant's. Both men performed with noted heroism and valor in the Mexican War. But after that, neither men could cope well with army life during peacetime. However, unlike Grant, Jackson handled his business affairs and investments very well. This is something we will explore more fully in the next episode. In fact, this is a good place to break. So join me next time for episode 25 as we further explore Jackson's pre-war life and begin his legendary campaign in the Shenandoah Valley. 